spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week it's time to go a bit off the grid. It's episode 370 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I gotta tell you, I've been so excited about the premiere of Sweet Tooth on Netflix. It is finally here. The adaptation of the DC of Vertigo story from Jeff Lemire is finally upon us, and I just happen to have Sweet Tooth and the big man himself with me this week, Christian Convery and Nanso Anozi, who, of course, play Sweet Tooth and the big man, respectively. Can't wait to ask them about the new series and dive into their characters a little bit. Also going to be talking to Mackenzie Lee, who's the author of a New Marvel book from Marvel Press, Gamora and Nebula, Sisters at Arms. Maybe we'll be able to learn a little bit more about a Marvel book that you'll be able to read as well. Plus, Story Worth Back is our sponsor this week. Father's Day coming up. It's a great Father's Day gift. I'll tell you why here in a few minutes. Jupiter's Legacy is done at Netflix. That's going to be part of the nerd news. And yes, comic reviews are back this week. But let's dive in. Speaking of comics, let's talk about the adaptation of Sweet Tooth with, with Christian Convery and Nonzo Anozi up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, it's Jake Manley from Netflix's The Order, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The wait is over. Sweet Tooth has finally premiered on Netflix. All eight episodes available to stream right now. And I just happen to have the stars of the series with me right now. Christian, Nonzo, how you doing, guys? Cool, man. Great. How are you? Doing great. Really, really love the series from what I've seen so far. As a matter of fact, how much did you guys kind of know about the original comic going in? And as you were really starting to learn about your characters, what were your first impressions? I never read any comic books when I was younger. And when I got the role of Sweet Tooth, I really got into comic books. And I read all of them like over and over and over and over again. And my first impressions of the role of Gus and the script and the comic books it just really wowed me how much detail and how live it came when I was reading in my head. And I really love the unique aspects of also playing a part deer, part boy hybrid. And that's what really made Sweet Tooth a special role to me. Well, for me, I, I mean, as soon as I read the script, I was, it was so easy. It came off the page so well. And the vision, you could visualize it in your head and I can visualize playing the character. So for the books, I, the comic, the graphic novel, I read a bit later on and I then started to understand the world that we were trying to create and bring into this new world. It's a lot darker. I wasn't familiar with the, with the work before I got the part, but it was, it's a lot darker than what we were trying to, the story we were trying to tell that was available, going to be accessible to the whole family. Mm-hmm. Now, under the tutelage of Jeff Lemire, who is the original writer of, of Sweet Tooth, the comic books, and with the guidance of, of Jim Mickle, our director, and Robert Downey Jr. as our producer, and Susan Downey as well, they took such great care in bringing that story to screen, still keeping the, a lot of the elements from the original comic book, but then making it accessible to the whole family, which I think is is an amazing thing. And it, it's just an honor to be part of it, you know, and, and to be able to tell the story of these, these two kind of really unusual and unique characters. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely dive into that here in a couple of minutes. But Christian, I want to talk to you about the really special bond that Gus shares with his pop. I mean, I mean, if you want to talk about something that's going to get you in the feels right away, that certainly did. For me, anyway, talk a little bit about that relationship and how do you feel like that's going to shape Gus's future? I really think it's going to shape Gus's future in a really good way because his papa really taught him a lot of things about life in the show. And there's this little thing that I can't talk about because it's um, in the later episodes, but it really gives Gus hope and more inspiration and motivation to keep going at it and accomplish your goal and help other hybrids and save them basically is definitely his papa helping him later in the future in um, the series well said well said now nonzo i feel like jeopardy puts on a good front right but underneath that i rough, rough exterior i feel like he's got a good heart though so how much will we actually learn about his story during the time of the crumbled in, in this series 
Ah, oh, well, I think there will be, I can say you will start to learn little bits about him. And there are probably a few little Easter eggs along the way that will, that maybe if you watched it a second time, you'd maybe get a few things, you know, little nips and little bits. But um, he's a very, a man with a very checkered past, as we could just say, and he's trying to get away from it. He's trying to leave that behind and survive day to day because that's the most important thing in this dystopian kind of nightmare wonderland that we are in. The, the main thing is to be able to eat, to be safe and to make it through to the next day. And that, that's what he's just trying to focus on doing. I think through the relationship that he has with Gus, you start to peel back the layers and see what kind of man he is. And I, I think ultimately we know that he, he was a pro athlete. We know that he was, he has a certain amount of confidence and, and he's got a great size and he's, he's, he's survived this long on his own. So he's a survivor. But this world has kind of crumpled him into this gruff, you know, like you say, has this tough exterior. But the great thing about Sweet Tooth and the way Christian plays him is he has this optimism and, and amazing mm -hmm. positivity that kind of slowly pierces through that tough exterior. And even from the very moment they first meet, you feel like, oh, I, I don't know if they're, you know, is he going to leave him alone or are they going to, you kind of see it. It was almost destined destined to happen. It's funny because that kind of leads me into my next question for the both of you guys. I mean, they're certainly an unlikely pair. There's no about, doubt about that, like you said earlier, non so. But do you kind of feel like they both have something that they can learn from each other? Yeah. What I think Jeopard could learn from Gus is always stay positive and have optimism and be hopeful and always look for the best. That's what I think Jeopard could definitely learn from Gus as Gus chips away at his hard exterior shell and gets into his heart of gold, basically, and gives him hope and optimism. I, th I think there's, that is kind of like the way I see it is like, you know, he, Jeopard is protecting Gus in a, in, a, in a world that wants to kill him. And Gus is reminding Jeopard of the humanity that he didn't believe still existed in this world. And he reminds him of a life that maybe once was. And, and in many ways, I think the viewers will be surprised in the ways that they are there for each other. It's, it's, it takes many twists and turns. No doubt about that. We're talking to Christian Convery and Nanso Anozi, who plays who play Gus and Jeopard on Sweet Tooth, which, of course, you can see June 4th on Netflix. Now, guys, you know, obviously Sweet Tooth deals with the deadly virus. And, you know, it's kind of all too familiar with the stuff that's been going on in the world these days. Is it just the hybrids, though, that makes the series unique and sets it apart? Or do you feel like there's something more to it? Because obviously this is f about far more than just this virus. I think I think the key thing to remember about it, I won't, I won't, I'll let you go, Christian, but I think the key thing to remember is that this comic book was written over a decade ago, yep. um, long before COVID ever happened. And it's just kind of like, we even shot the pilot before before we went into lockdown, you know, so it was we we a year before it, so we didn't even know that that was going to be the case. But the the fact that it is, it has a relation, you know, through the the virus, um, it, to what is going, what has we've been going through in the past year, I think it, it helps us relate to it a little a little bit more in that in that way, and kind of helps us understand that if we work together, we can actually make it through anything. There's hope to make it through anything. Yeah, and on that note, what he was talking about, Sweet Tooth, I really want you to take away hope and positivity and optimism from the show because since COVID is a dark time is what I'd say. And if giving getting that hope and optimism from the show can really give you inspiration, you know, we can get through COVID, which we obviously will, but that. So I wanted to actually ask you, Christian, because Gus is actually learning a lot of things for the first time as you know kind of like a 10 year old boy who's discovering things that you know younger children would have discovered a lot earlier do you feel like that's kind of an amazing thing for him to be able to experience you do you think that could actually end up being a huge burden on him instead i think it can be both in a way let, let me explain so i think it's really cool for us to see it at that age because he will understand more about what it is and he'll be more interested than he would be when he was younger is what I'd say. But I also feel like that's a big burden because, you know, he, he doesn't really know what 
reality is like and he just thinks that everything's nice and friendly because he thinks that his father lied to him because there were no fires when he stepped outside the fence for episode one. I really feel like that could impact Gus in a negative way because, you know, he just thinks that everyone's going to be lovey-dovey until he realizes that it's definitely not like that at all. No okay. doubt about that. Now, Nonzo, as you said, Jeopard's kind of been out there for a while. He's been he's been on his own. He's been surviving. And in the in the trailer, we get to see some of the threats that are out there. But of course, we don't want you to spoil anything. But tease for us just how dangerous is it out there? I mean, literally, there is. This is a land where two thirds of the population have been ravaged in the Great Crumble, and there's no law. There is no, there are no police. There's no law and order. So, so really and truthfully, people have to lie, cheat, steal, and, and kill in order to make it through to the next day. So that's how deadly it is. And my character has made it. Um, my character Jeopard has made it this long, the last ten years. The last thing he needs is this hybrid boy to tag along. He just wants to make it through to the next day. I mean, because there are there are hundreds of poachers poachers out there, ready to kill you know these half kid, half human you know children. They're blamed a lot for what happened, even though they weren't necessarily to blame. His life would be in danger you know constantly. So the more he hangs around me, the more trouble it's going to bring me. Ah, uh, yes, that double-edged sword that you guys are going to see in the series here coming up. But before I let you guys go, obviously you both have nicknames. For each other we've got sweet tooth we've got the big man now that you guys are together i feel like you need like a team nickname so have you thought about like what you guys as a team could maybe be called together okay i have been thinking about this for a while and i all right here we go okay i have three options so yeah. these are my favorite options that i picked up from my endless list of teams. <laughs> but it would be the unusual duo the dynamic mm. duo or Sweet Tooth. Because, you know, that's the name of the show, and I guess their team name could be called Sweet Tooth. Because, you know, it kind of makes sense with the show name. And, it, it, it does make sense. Nonsa, what do you think? Are those good ideas? What do you think, man? Big Tooth, Big Man, and Sweet Tooth. Big Tooth, I swear I wrote, bi I, I wrote Big Sweet down. That was mine. Big Sweet. That no, was mine. Like that was the one I wrote down. Okay, yeah, that's a big I like that, actually. Big Sweet. Make sure you're also using hashtag Sweet Tooth because that that is how you know you're gonna be able to keep up with the fans of the show and it is really such an amazing story and you guys just aren't even prepared for the journey you're gonna go on with these two. It yeah. is Christian Convery and Nanzo Anozi. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And seriously, I mean, I sat down and I binge watched the entire series because it was just such a heartfelt story. It's such a story of adventure. It even brought a tear to my eye. I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah, I, I actually cried during one of the episodes of this series, just the how just vibrant and lively these characters are in, in such a dystopian society and how scary things can be at times as well. It is such a great mix. If you love the comic, I think you'll love the series. Even if you haven't read the comic, make sure you're watching Sweet Tooth on Netflix right now. It is a great binge, and I think that you're really going to love it. Thanks to Christian Convery and Nonzo Anozi again for joining me to talk about Sweet Tooth. Up next, let's talk about a new book from Marvel Press, Gamora and Nebula, Sisters at Arms. We'll talk with the author Mackenzie Lee next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Mythic from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You guys might not have heard of this one yet. Did you know that Gamora and Nebula are actually getting their own story? It's called Gamora and Nebula's Sister at Arms. And how about this? Even better, you got a New York Times bestselling author that you might recognize writing the book as well. It's Mackenzie Lee. Mackenzie, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing so good. Now, Mackenzie, this is actually your second project with Marvel. Your first one was actually Loki, Where the Mischief Lies. Did you approach these Marvel projects differently than some of your other work? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of had to in that most of my other work doesn't come with hundreds of other contributors who have worked on these characters and um, thousands of fans already built in. And in the case of Loki, thousands of years of, of mythology to draft upon. So it sort of necessitated a different approach. But I actually think the approach has made me a better writer. I've sort of been, I wasn't an outliner before I wrote these books. And because of the sort of approval process you have to go through with Marvel, I ended up uh, doing pretty expensive outlines for these books and 
I'm furious that outlining works and made me a better writer. And now <laughs> I outline all my books. And so it's been a different process, but I, I, I've taken a lot away from it. And I think it's, it sounds cheesy, but I think it's helped me become a, a better writer all around. You know, you, you mentioned the fans already, and obviously fans have seen both Gamora and Nebula in, I mean, many different media mediums. I mean, movies, comics, animated series, they've even been in video games. So what was your approach in writing them and capturing their dynamic? So I approached this as kind of an origin story, but an origin story for their for the dynamic between them that most people are familiar with, which is which is primarily from the movies. So when we see them in the movies, they both sort of recognize that they've they've had these childhoods that are sort of shaped by abuse and manipulation from Thanos that were were kind of previously invisible to them. And so they've already recognized that and now are kind of on their way to doing the work that needs to be done to overcome that and to recognize who they are and what they believe in separate from the influence of Thanos. And so I kind of took that moment that most people are going to be most familiar with them and worked backward from there. And I said, okay, so what made them start to recognize this? And what made them start to realize that their rivalry might be something that has been sort of artificially forced upon them in order to keep them from realizing they're stronger together than they are against each other. We've certainly seen examples of that for sure. Absolutely. Now, do you actually feel like being able to write a younger Gamora and a younger Nebula allowed you to tell more of a unique story than maybe we've seen before? Yeah, I I love coming of age stories. That's always kind of been my my favorite kind of book. And I think part of part of that comes from the fact that we all feel like we're coming of age all the time. I, I think the big lie of adulthood is feeling like at some point you have it figured out and you stop having to, to make it up as you go along. So coming of age stories are kind of relatable to everybody because we all feel like we're all coming of age and all figuring it out constantly. And so I loved writing them at this moment where they are young people. They're they're sort of on their own for the first time. They're outside of Thanos' control. They're starting to work on their own their own missions and their own assignments and starting to figure out who they are outside of their home and outside of their direct sphere of influence, which I think is something that a lot of younger readers in particular can relate to as you're as you're going off to college or as you're moving out of your house for the first time or your your parents' house. But also something I think we we're continually reevaluating in life as we, as our relationships change, as our, our living situation changes, our homes change, we're, we're figuring out who we are in different situations and with, with different influences all the time. You hit the nail right in the head. I'm still trying to figure out this adult thing. So if you figure it out before I do, you just go ahead and let me know because I need all the help I can get. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll give you a call. <laughs> I told my dad once that my, my dad and I were working on my, my taxes one time and I said something to him. I was like, boy, I'm glad I have you here that you have this all figured out. And he goes, oh, I don't know anything. I'm just figuring it out as I go. Like, <laughs> Very Great. comforting when you're it doing your taxes. Ends. Awesome. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, wow, I love it. Now, the moment the... to tell me. There you go. Mackenzie, we know from the description of the novel that Gamora is on a planet of torn dune. Now, I feel like I need a shower just from the first couple of chapters reading about this place. So how would you describe it without spoiling anything? <laughs> Dirty. It's very much based on the, the American West. I grew up in the West. I grew up kind of surrounded by red rock and ranches and ghost towns and abandoned mines and this myth of the sort of lone gunman cowboy and the heroic pioneer settlers who crossed America for manifest destiny and a better life and all that. And then as I got older, became more aware and more interested in the story of who had to be exploited in order for that myth to exist and who had to be stepped on and whose lands had to be stolen and and destroyed in order for us to buy into this and create this this western mythology and so i went into this wanting to write a space western so the the planet is very much based on the sort of grittier dirtier side of of the american west that that we don't always talk about and sort of about the the workers behind the scenes so so the planet is the planet has a renewable clean energy source that's part of its sort of core. Once that's discovered, it becomes the property of a mining corporation. And the people on the planet are sort of forced to to strip mine their home and to totally destroy their home in order to fulfill this sort of indentured servitude they've been forced into where they they have to work to survive, but they can't work hard enough to get out. 
and I pulled a lot of inspiration from from a lot of things besides the West. I was thinking about turn of the century uh, factories and and steelworks and things like that. I was I was thinking about genre entries like like Mad Max and like Dune and things where where resources are precious and only available to sort of the top tier. So the planet's inspired by a lot of different things, and yeah, it's just it's it's gritty and it's dirty, and I channeled some camping trips I've taken where you just never feel like you're clean the whole time. There's just sand in every fold of your clothes. So yeah, it's a, it's a dirty, gross place. Yep. Definitely been there. Talking to Mackenzie Liu, who's the New York times Mm -hmm. bestselling author of Gamora and Nebula sisters in arms, which you can get right now. As a matter of fact, now, Mackenzie, if one division taught us anything recently, it's that Marvel fans love to speculate on what characters might be coming to a story. So right away, you've got at least one mystery character, I would say two, in your story, and you got coded messages throughout. So how much fun was that for you, and how much are you looking forward to the fan theories to start up on social media? Because they're coming. (laughs) It was so much fun. So the first book I did for Marvel is called Loki, Where Mischief Lies, and it's about greasy teenage Loki solving mysteries in 19th century Victorian England. And in it, I had sort of, I put in a couple of little like shout outs or little, little kind of clues to other things. And, and just cause it's fun. And cause that's part of what's fun about creating in the Marvel universe is you have this enormous universe and it's fun to see how everything intersects and interacts with each other. And the fans responded so strongly to that. And I saw this one thing on Tumblr where somebody had laid out this whole theory that like, connected my original characters from my book to Peggy Carter and then to Sharon Carter. And I was like, Oh my, like people go in for this and it's so cool. And it's so fun. And I re- I realized that's really part of like why people love this universe and why it's so fun to have all of these stories intersecting across so many different platforms, via books and comics and movies and video games and all these different things. And so this time I was, I was more intentional when I went into it because I was like, okay, people like this, people have fun with it. And it was a lot of fun to pick up a lot of, pick up sort of plot threads that other people had dropped in their, in their comics or in their, their movies or whatever to throw in little offhand references. And then, yeah, to have this sort of looming mystery character hovering over it all and see, see sort of how long it takes people to figure out who that is. Now, Mackenzie, I feel like I'm going to ask the one question that everybody has been waiting to get the answer to. When is the Nebula makeup tutorial going to be coming up on Instagram? Because it's been two weeks since Gamora and people need to have it. Well, <laughs> so I did I did do a Gamora makeup tutorial on my Instagram page and have not yet done Nebula because she uh, requires a, a bald cap and more commitment and more makeup skills than I have. Gamora... Gamora was hard enough. My goodness, that was so much green paint. I felt like I was auditioning for Wicked. Um, I couldn't believe how much makeup it took to cover my whole face. I don't know if I can afford to buy enough blue paint for Nebula. But maybe maybe sometime in the future we'll, we'll get a Nebula appearance. Awesome, awesome. I want to go back to the characters in your story for a second. Of course, we want to try, try to stay spoiler-free here, but are there any other characters other than Gamora and Nebula that you're excited for fans to meet? Maybe one of the n- native t- Torndunians, maybe. One of the original characters in the book is a character named uh, Versa Lux, who Gamora ends up teaming up with on her, her mission to find the heart of the planet. Versa is a, she she drives this huge mining rig that digs these tunnels into the planet that are then used for mining. She has a, who, what do I say without spoiling it? It's always, it's always tough as an author because I know all the details, but uh-huh. I can't even remember what spoilers like, I don't remember when that gets revealed. Um, <laughs> I've said things at events before, and people are like, that's a, that's a reveal. And I'm like, is it? I'm like, that's a twist. I'm like, is it? But so Versa is part of a group of rebels on the planet who are trying to advocate with explosives for better working conditions and, and better treatment of the miners. And she also has an interesting past. And she's a character I love because I love the idea of someone who's torn between sort of a legacy that they feel responsible for and then what they actually want in the moment. And I think you see that in Gamora and Nebula, too, so she becomes a good foil for them because they're also characters that are are torn between a father figure and what he expects of them versus versus their own lives and, and what they want to create of themselves. Absolutely. Now, Mackenzie, before I let you go, I know that Marvel likes to keep their secrets close to the vest, so I won't try and get you in trouble by asking you what's next for you, but I will ask you this. Instead, (laughs) how about we do this? As a fan, 
Are there any characters that you would love to be able to write at some point? Oh, gracious. That's a hard question to answer because one of them is, is the next book I'm doing. and so I have <laughs> Of to, course. Of course. No, uh, let's see. For real, though, I love Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel has been w- one of my favorites for so long. I love her in the comic books. I love her on screen. I would love to do anything with Captain Marvel. Yeah, Brie Larson, call me. Yep, that's a, that's as good an answer as any, especially since we've got the movies coming up. I mean, come on, Marvel. This is this just seems like something that we need to do. But first, make sure I'm you here. get Gamora and Nebula's Sister at Arms, which is available now everywhere books are sold and at your favorite ebook retailers as well. New York Times bestselling author Mackenzie Lee, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by StoryWorth. And Father's Day is right around the corner. You might remember me around Mother's Day talking about StoryWorth and how it's a way to share weekly stories with someone special in your life. And these stories are collected into a book that's then bound with pictures and everything and shipped for free. So it's a way to really keep your family's legacy. I get to give my mom story worth for Mother's Day, and it's been really great unraveling these weekly stories. And, you know, actually for her, it was a way for her to look at some events in her life that maybe she hadn't thought about in a while and actually maybe brought up some new memories as well. So that's been really great. Imagine being able to do that for the father figure in your life. Maybe your dad, you have an uncle, your grandfather, your father-in-law. I've heard some fascinating stories. My father wasn't really around when I was younger, so I, I was spent a lot of time with my uncles, all of which have, have had very different lives and tell fascinating stories. I had one uncle that it was an air traffic controller, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be awesome to actually learn more about that a little bit. So imagine with StoryWorth being able to ask him, you know, what is one of your more memorable experiences as an air traffic controller? I thought that would be a really, really cool thing to unravel. My grandfather, who's no longer with us, was a musician. Imagine being able to ask one of my uncles, what is your favorite memory with your dad during his time as a musician? That would be so cool to learn more about. Questions I've never gotten a chance to ask. And with StoryWorth, you can ask questions like that every week. And if you're stuck, you can't think of a question for that week, you don't need to necessarily come up with your own. StoryWorth provides some very amazing and thought-provoking questions for you to ask the father figure in your life as well. So, hey, just jump right on it now and get that Father's Day gift for the special dad in your life. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash down and nerdy. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash down and nerdy for $10 off. I'm going to tell you right now, it's so important not just for us, but for the future generations of our family to preserve these stories and these legacies. And what better way to do that than with a question a week and then have it be bound into a beautiful book by using StoryWorth. Once again, thanks to Mackenzie Lee for joining me this week to talk about Gamora and Nebula Sisters at Arms, which is available now from Marvel Press. Up next, going to stay in the Disney realm and talk about the short us again. I'll give you my review and some thoughts from a press conference that I attended for the short as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When Disney does something for the first time in five years, I gotta talk about it. So Us Again was the first theatrical short, animated short done by Disney in the past. Five years and us again ran with Raya and the Last Dragon when that was in theaters. And now it is on Disney Plus if you haven't gotten a chance to see it. And I got to tell you, what this does is it tells the story of an older couple named Art and Dot who are trying to rekindle their passion for life on one amazing night and through dance. And I actually got a chance to be a part of a press conference with the creative teams behind us again. And when I say that, I'm talking about director Zach Parrish. You've got Keone and Mari Madrid, who were the dancers and the choreographers on the project. Bradford Simonson, who was the producer, and Pinar Toprak, who was the composer. Derek Huff was the nominator, too, by the way. And if you know Dancing with the Stars, you know who Derek Huff is. And what everybody seemed to talk about with this project was how vibrant it was and how fun it was and how alive it was. And even Keone and Mari, who did the choreography for this and were the dancers, 
said it was our job to become Art and Dot. And those were the characters that were in this. And we actually had to see a little bit of performance that they did as well. And when you watch this, it just makes you, it not only does it make you appreciate your your youth and being able to, you know, the kind of you're only as young as you feel kind of thing, but it just makes you want to move. And anything that makes you want to move is probably going to put a smile on your face as well. Because I got to tell you, Pinar Toprak, who did the music for Captain Marvel, you want to talk about you would not expect something from someone going from something like Captain Marvel to this. The music for this is so infectious and amazing that I feel like anybody would want to move to it. And there's a lot of movement. It's not just Martin Dot. There's a lot of movement throughout this entire cityscape that they have going on here. As a matter of fact, one of the things that that Zach Parrish and Bradford Simonson were talking about when talking about this at the press conference was, you know, what, what were some of the cities that were inspirations for this? And Zach immediately said Chicago because that's he's from the Midwest and it's very familiar with that city. There's some New York sprinkled in there, which I noticed. There's some Los Angeles sprinkled in there as well. I kind of got a Santa Monica Pier vibe from this, too, at one point. So, and again, one of the other parts of this, first of all, there's no dialogue in this at all. It's all movement. It's all music, which I also thought was really, really interesting that there was no dialogue. And that was a very deliberate choice. From the team and, and Zach Parrish felt like you could tell the story through movement. And that's kind of one of the things that dancing is all about. I mean, I don't know how much of a hardcore dance fan that you are, but it's amazing to me when you watch these professional dance performances and these choreographed performances, how much movement can really tell the story. And especially when somebody is really, really good at it. And if you followed dance at all, you know who Keone and Mari are. As a matter of fact, Zach Parrish had them in mind when he was putting this together, and it was Bradford Simonson and that team that said, you know, let's just call them then and see if they want to be a part of this. And after a little bit of arm twisting, yeah, they decided that they'd be a part of it, and kind of the rest is history sort of thing. And Zach Parrish was talking about how these characters of Art and Daughter are kind of modeled after grandparents that he knew in his life, he had a, he had some that were very vibrant and some that were also, you know, a little bit more sedentary in their ways. And you get to see that play out in the short. And again, I don't want to really want to spoil anything, but you get to see, you know, the two different sides of that coin and how it can affect a relationship, albeit in the short term, because this is a short film that's about five, six minutes long. But you get to see that play out. And another really cool aspect of this and something that really interesting that Zach Parrish said in this press conference was that with the use rain as a transformative part about this. And this is the only spoiler I'll give you. And maybe you've seen this in some of the visuals that were posted online and on down on nerdypodcast.com. But you get to see them transform into their youthful selves through rain. When rain touches them, that's when they become young again. And you know, when the rain doesn't touch them, that's when they become older again. He Zach Parrish talked about how, Rain is sort of fleeting, right? That eventually it just sort of drifts away. And that same goes with our youth, right? Our youth sort of kind of eventually trickles out and drifts away. But what are you left with sort of thing? So for something that is that is as fun as Us Again is and as infectious as it is, it does deal with some real issues and, and some really interesting aspects of life too. So it's not just a fun dance number that's going to want to get you up and moving. It's something that tackles the aging process and how people deal with that throughout their lives. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. As somebody, you know, who's 42 and getting up there, and sometimes I don't even want to get out of my chair, never mind dance. But my wife is very vibrant, and and, and she is very full of life. And I try to be as full of life as I can to sort of match her energy. And, and this this is a short that really kind of got me thinking about that a little bit. But it also had me tapping my, my leg in, on my chair as I was watching it, too. So and, and just the character designs are so amazing. And it's funny, when Keone and Mari were talking about their choreography and they were talking about the animation on this project, they, were, they, were like, they said, you know, we're kind of mad because it looked like the, the uh, animation was actually better than what we were able to do ourselves on the dance floor in in our choreography. So they were just talking about how 
the animation brought that up even to another level. And Zach was talking about just wanting to match that level of Keone and Mari because they're so incredible. And then you ma- you marry that with Pinar Toprock's soundtrack that was created for this, which was created, by the way, just, just with a short description. That's how this whole thing got started. That's how talented Pinar Toprock is. If you don't know her work, look it up because I think you'll be really, really impressed by what she did. But this is one of those things where you can watch it really quickly. It's it's going to put a smile on your face. And you want to talk about it. It's one of those things where if you're having a bad day and you watch this, I think your day is going to get a little bit better. And that's just one of those things that, you know, animated shorts. I, I talked about the short films from the Disney Launchpad Project. Go to downnerdypodcast.com to get my review and my little chat about that from that press conference. But this, too, it just shows you the power of something that you can create in five and a half minutes that can just be so meaningful and so bring so much joy. And that is exactly what Us Again does. So make sure you're not missing it on Disney Plus, streaming exclusively right now. That's going to do it from our review and a recap of the press conference for Disney's Us Again. Up next, it's time to talk about some comics again. It's back this week, what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aubrey Sitterson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels good to be back with the bags and boards this week. It's time for what we're reading. And up first, something I wanted to read a couple fun books this week. So I'm going to start out with Crush and Lobo number one from DC. I'm Rico Tamaki writing this one. Amanke Naulapan on the art. Tamara Bonmillan on the colors. And Ariana Maher on the letters. Chris Anka, by the way, with a great cover. Really fun on this one. And that just sets the tone. For the book. Now, this book doesn't just break the fourth wall. It acts like there was never a wall there to begin with. So if you're looking, if you love that sort of thing, you're going to love this book right off the bat. Now, Crush is definitely a fun character, but this story actually begins dealing with some of her personal issues. There's some serious stuff here as well. I mean, her girlfriend and her dad, are, there's, there's stuff going on there with she's having a hard time with her relationship, and maybe that's affected. By what's going on with her dad or what has happened with her dad in the past. So those two things may be related a little bit. The mishap with her girlfriend is really, really funny in this in the beginning part of this book, I think, anyway. Well, her dad's got a lot of free time right now, and I won't spoil why exactly. But, I mean, he reached out to her, and it might be time to deal with some of these lingering issues. The question is, will she actually do that? I will say that this book will make you laugh. It's going to make you smile, whether you know a lot about Crush or not. And there's kind of a quick summation of the character in this book in a very funny way. This book really made me want to stay engaged with it. And it was the personality of Crush that did that. So credit to Mariko Tamaki for doing that. There's certainly some relatable things in the story as well, too. I mean, if you've ever been in an awkward social situation at all, you will definitely relate to at least one of the things. That happens in this book. The art also happens to be incredible, too, by the way. Really helps dial up the fun here. And it's again, I'm a sucker for good facial expressions and storytelling. And the way that this art team brings that to life, I think, was one of the things that made this book really, really great. So I'm looking forward to the next issue. Make sure you get Crush and Lobo number one from DC. Couldn't wait to talk about this one either from our boy Aubrey Sitterson. It's The Worst Dudes, number one, from Dark Horse. I specifically waited until this book, until after this book came out to talk about it. Joined by Tony Gregori on the art here, Laverne Kinzierski on the colors, and Taylor Esposito on the letters. Now, I'm going to tell you this. The cover actually warns you how over-the-top graphic that this book is. And it's an understatement from the first freaking page. Now, Aubrey, you might be listening to this. I don't know how you could begin to come up with these characters in this story, but it's definitely a unique one. You could go through the pantheon of comics and not find a single thing like the worst dudes anywhere from any publisher as far as I'm concerned. Now, what you've got here is you've got a crooked space cop who's assigned by a god to track down a mistress, all while being accompanied by her entitled, temperamental, pain-in-the-ass son. How about that? Oh, by the way, their best chance at finding this mistress is a cokehead snagglepuss and a drug dealer. 
How about that? Sounds simple enough, right? There's the best summation of the story that I could possibly give you. That does more of justice than, than me describing it any further. If you're looking for something that's completely off the wall, this book is definitely something that's going to check off every box for you. Because I can tell you several times when I was reading this, I go, well, there's something I've never seen before. And the character designs, too. And credit the art team for pulling this out of nowhere, because this had to be a fun book to work on if you're an artist. Some of these character designs are just borderline nuts. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. The colors are super vibrant in this book. I mean, they are everywhere. And, and I love, love, love what Laverne Kinzierski did with this book. Now, you have to see this book to believe it. I, I know that that's kind of cliche, and maybe that's something you've heard before, but seriously, what anybody could do to describe this book could not possibly do it justice. You have to see it for yourself and judge it for yourself. Maybe you love it, maybe you hate it, but you will not forget The Worst Dudes number one. I can almost guarantee you that. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, speaking of books, a comic book adaptation is now down the tubes. I'll talk about it next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Robin Wood Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When released is just a fancy word for canceled. It's time for nerd news, and I'm talking about what happened with Jupiter's Legacy from Netflix this week. And it was first reported by Variety that there would not be a second season of the Jupiter's Legacy series at Netflix and that the cast was released from their contracts. That's how it was put. I don't know why we can't just call it what it is, and maybe maybe I will explain that a little bit more when I talk about what Mark Millar said. Now, what they are going to do is move forward with, I don't know if you'd call it a spinoff so much, but a, a comic book series called Super Crooks, which is set in the same universe as Jupiter's Legacy. Now, this would, this time it would actually focus on the villain side of things. And maybe villains are more interesting. I don't know. But also, it was interesting because Mark Miller actually said that, you know, don't worry because we plan, we're confident we'll return to it later. We're talking about Jupiter's Legacy. That was a quote from a post that he put up. I mean, he might be confident. I don't know how confident Netflix is in that because let's face it the first season didn't do well overall i certainly enjoyed certain aspects of it but it did struggle in other aspects as well but it's almost like a take a hint kind of situation and maybe they find something in super crooks i actually think that in thinking that they might return to it later what mark miller is actually saying is is that hey if super crooks does well then if you want the rest of jupiter's legacy you better watch Super Crooks. And maybe there's a fair amount of truth to that. Maybe they would go back and revisit Jupiter's legacy at that point. So, you know, there's a cliffhanger that's never going to get resolved, I don't think. But the larger thing here for me is, is that what is going on with the Miller World properties at Netflix? Because it doesn't seem like there's any of them that are really able to get off the ground. There's a lot of rich stories there. But none of them are seeming to stick so far. Remember the Magic Order? That was the first part of the deal between Netflix and and Miller World, right? That was going to be the first series in the bunch. And there there was comic created for it. It was going to be created originally for Netflix. And that series never happened. Absolutely 100% didn't happen at all and isn't going to happen. So for some reason, it seems like things are sputtering. A bit here and maybe one of these properties gets picked up and it actually becomes popular at some point and that kind of gets things going but it just seems like it's a it's a rocky beginning to this relationship and I'm not saying that like Netflix is going to dump the whole deal or anything but it just seems like it, as good as some of these stories are you think that one of them would have stuck by now and I'm not blaming Netflix either I just think that it's interesting that fans haven't really picked up on any of these projects yet and started to really love them. So I, I'll just be very interested to see how Super Crooks does. Are we ever going to get Chrononauts at any point? Because that's the one that I I think I want the most. But Jupiter's Legacy, I really thought that that would work, and it just didn't for whatever reason. Does that mean we won't see any characters from Jupiter's Legacy in Super Crooks? Not saying that. But again, we are very much in a wait-and-see type of situation. But I think the dust is going to settle quite a bit 
before we even see Super Crooks on Netflix. Here's something that went from a crowdfunding campaign to a super popular movie on Netflix and on demand, actually. And that is Code 8, the movie from Stephen and Robbie Amell. And there is going to be now a Code 8 sequel movie after a hugely successful Indiegogo campaign. They are now going to be back with a sequel and not just Stephen Amell and Robbie Amell coming back. Director Jeff Chan going to return back as well. Now, Code 8 Part 2 is going to be the name of the movie, so, you know, that shouldn't be too surprising because it's a sequel. This time it's actually going to focus on the journey of a teenage girl, though, to fighting for justice for her slain brother at the hands of corrupt police officers. So who does she call up to help out? Well, how about Robbie Amell's character and Stephen Amell's character in this movie as well? So, I mean, I loved the first Code 8 movie. I was really hoping they would get a sequel, and now they're going to. Will we see some of the other characters that we saw in the first movie come back for this one as well? I think it's too soon to say. And there's no word of Vertical, Vertical Entertainment's going to be back distributing this thing in the U.S. or Elevation Pictures in Canada. But the bottom line here is, is that we are getting a Code 8 sequel. And you still have time if you haven't seen the first movie yet. I think it is still on Netflix or you can buy it on demand as well. I, I actually bought the movie right away when it came out in December of 2019. It just looked like really, really cool story to me. It's a way to see see Stephen Amell, maybe in a way you haven't seen him before, and a little bit of a different side of Robbie Amell as well, and just the way they work together. I mean, I know they're related, so there's 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 going to be that camaraderie there, but the way these two characters vibe off of each other, I think, is really really interesting. Plus, it's also an interesting way that people with powers are treated as well. It's a very different take. On that, I, I mean, maybe you feel like you've seen it before. I think that they actually put a different spin and a more personal spin on it. So if you haven't seen the first Code 8 movie yet, make sure you're watching it before this second one comes out because you're definitely going to want to get caught up. It's been kind of a slow nerd news week, but I did want to talk about a couple of trailers that came out. One from our sci-fi series called Surreal Estate, which is going to be coming out on July the 16th. And our buddy Tim Rozon from One on Earp is in this thing and he plays a real estate agent that essentially helps people sell houses that they're unable to sell. And why? Because they're haunted. There's all kinds of possessions going on in these houses and ghosts and stuff like that. They go in there, figure out what's going on, get rid of the ghosts and help people sell these houses. And it looks really quirky. It's an interesting concept and an idea too. And you think maybe this is, maybe you feel like this is corny. Okay. Maybe you think, really? It's about a basically a real estate agent, ghost hunter. Now, before you write it off, though, it's corny. Watch the trailer because it's got this fun little quirkiness to it, but it's also got some, you know, decent horror elements, I think. And if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to have brand new series from sci-fi, why not make them unique? Like this, right? And I get it. This is going to be one of those swing for the fences type of things where either you're going to hit it out of the park or you're going to miss entirely and the bat's going to fly out of your hands. I understand that. This is a movie, I mean, excuse me, a series that just might not work. And I think that everybody involved understands that. But what if it does? Because sometimes you throw that dart at the wall and it hits that bullseye, right? And Tim Rozon's one of those guys that just has that charm about him. And, of course, you know the Winona Earp fandom is going to follow him now wherever he goes, so you're going to get a little bit of that in the beginning. So if this first episode is any good at all, I think that this show has a real real chance of sticking on sci-fi. So, yeah, July July 16th, I'm all in. Yeah, go ahead and I'm going to check out the first episode of Surreal Estate. Now, of course, going to review it on the show. And I also wanted to talk about, and I know that I don't talk about and, you know, kids animated stuff a ton, but I, I do talk about, I want, there's plenty more to talk about coming up, but the Paw Patrol movie is going to be coming out on August the 20th. And of course, my kids are excited about it. It's going to be on Paramount Plus as well. If you're not going to able to go to the theater to see it. And if you see this trailer, first of all, let's talk about the actual movie itself. There, The pups go to Adventure City to try and, you know, basically help out the people of Adventure City. From the new mayor, Mayor Humdinger, now, of course, causing problems in Adventure City. Apparently, he's moved on from Foggy Bottom. The reason I know about this is because I have two young kids at home, and half of my life is Paw Patrol. And if you're a parent, you've probably experienced the same thing at some point. And yeah, there's some new pieces there, so you know there's going to be new toys coming out. But I hear, I, here's something I definitely want to talk about. 
And this is becoming a problem at Paramount. Character design. Did you see what they did with Ryder? It's funny because all of the pups seem pretty normal. If you know the Paw Patrol, all, all of them seem like they're pretty much in line with what you see in the series. And then you see Ryder. I don't know why they felt like they needed to change the look for Ryder, but it just looks bizarre. And I know I'm not the only one that feels this way because I've looked on social media and I've seen that sentiment from other parents that just know this show. And I know this show and Ryder looks weird. Yes, they changed the look for Mayor Humdinger too, but the way they over-exaggerate him actually kind of makes sense because that character is very over-the-top anyway. But it feels like Sonic the Hedgehog all over again. It feels like the Sonic design all over again because Ryder just looks its buggy and weird. I don't know how else to describe it. The hair is weird. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't look normal. And I realize we're talking about a Paw Patrol movie here, but kids notice stuff like that too. And if kids notice that, uh, that he looks weird and there's something not quite right and kids are picky, let's just face it. My kids are picky. My kid noticed it right away in the trailer that Ryder looks different. So is this going to be another got to fix fast situation where they're going to fix the design for Ryder before this comes out on August the 20th? I don't know. I don't know that they'll go that far for a Paw Patrol movie, but even though this movie has a chance to print money. If you don't know anything about the Paw Patrol because you don't have kids, this is a, just from Spin Master, this is a just million dollar franchise, multi-million dollar franchise. Yeah, this is one that you want to get right. I don't care if you're going to be releasing it in theaters and on Paramount Plus or not. If there's something wrong with this movie that would make people not want to go see it, then you need to fix it immediately. And I actually actually think that the the writer character design is a lot bigger deal than you think. So, yeah, I would fix that thing and and go. And and I don't think you're going to have to delay the movie to do it. I could be wrong, but I don't think that it would cause too much of a delay. And even if it did, just, you know, get it right the first time kind of thing. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Christian Convery and Nonzo Anozi to talk about Sweet Tooth with me. And, of course, Mackenzie Lee talking about Gamora and Nebula, Sisters at Arms. We want to find out more about what we've got going on. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Always nerd news up there, reviews, comics, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure you're checking out our sponsor this week, StoryWorth, and go to storyworth.com slash downandnerdy to get $10 off your first order and one of the best Father's Day gifts that you could possibly give to preserve Dad's memories and let him tell his stories. Also, follow along with us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at facebook.com slash downandnerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly And be good to your fellow nerds.